By the way, I'm going to ask you now before I forget. Remember last time when I had an awful time peeling up that top layer? Why don't you start on it right now so you don't make the same mistake and get stuck as I did so that when it comes to share the Lord's Supper together a little bit later that it readily peels off that first layer to expose the bread. If you have a Bible with you, please turn to Proverbs, I'm sorry, not Proverbs, Psalms 72. We're in a series on the Psalms, and we finished a four-part series on uh, repentance and what that looks like, and now we're going to be continuing through the Psalms, but beginning another mini-series, which I call the Psalms of the Kingdom, the Psalms of the Kingdom. Let's pay attention carefully as I read Psalm 72 to us. Of Solomon, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures. And as long as the moon throughout all generations, may he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life. And precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually. And blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Let's pray. Father in heaven, that is a charged prayer. That is a psalm that that awakens our senses to the glory of your kingdom established. But Lord, we need more than our senses open this morning. We need our minds opened. We need our hearts renewed to a renewed glimpse of your kingdom. And so Lord, I pray that you would give us that. Lord, we pray that you would Give me the words to speak, that you would, in a sense, help me get out of the way, um, not bring my, myself and my own problems into the pulpit, but to bring Christ, 
who is the one who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We pray, God, that you will help us to bow before your word in humble submission because it is the word of the Lord. Amen. The kingdom of God. There have been books and books written about what is the kingdom of God. It's kind of like a chicken. You know what a chicken is, but how do you define it? (laughs) That was the the difficult conundrum that Socrates proposed to his uh, students. How do you define a chicken? Well, is it a bird with feathers? Well, that, that doesn't define a chicken. Is it a bird that lays eggs? No. Is it a bird that you buy at Chick-fil-A? They didn't have Chick-fil-A back then. That's a pretty good answer. The kingdom of God is kind of like that. We kind of know what it is, but it's hard to define. Theologian Graham Goldsworthy offers my favorite summary. It's very concise of what the kingdom of God is, and I learned it in seminary. God's people living in God's place under God's rule. Okay? Remember that. God's people living in God's place under God's rule. Jesus also called this kingdom the kingdom of heaven because it is like heaven come to earth. However, whenever we come to the text, we always recognize that there's, a, there's something broken. There's, there's a disconnect here when we read Psalm 72 and words like that in the scriptures and we say, oh, how wonderful this is. Why isn't my experience of God's kingdom like that? If God is the king of the whole world, and he is a good God, and he is in the business of building his kingdom, then why does heaven seem so far away? What is his plan for the world? And how should we pursue life together while his kingdom has not yet arrived in its fullness? Psalm 72 gives us the beginning, and only the beginning, of the answers to those questions, and I hope to explore those in the Psalms of the Kingdom over the next six or seven times that I'm here preaching in the pulpit. What it teaches us, Psalm 72, is that God's anointed king is righteous and just to all people, especially to his downtrodden children. He is, in a sense, blessed to be a blessing, the Abrahamic blessing, to them and to all nations, so that God will be glorified in all the earth. And so what are we to take from this? I hope we take from it that we should worship the king to rejoice in his wise government and to flourish in the fullness of the shalom that he brings. Okay, first sermon in a six or seven part series in the Psalms of the Kingdom. Where we're at here, if you pay attention to what's printed in your Bibles, is right after verse 20, you see probably a heading in your version of the Bible that says book three, okay? So we're finishing book two of the Psalter. We're going to select Psalms in book three and then move into the beginning of book four. And when we do that, I think we're going to see that it provides a fascinating and instructive look at God's kingdom. If book two, which we're finishing today, is about Israel communicating to the nations about the nature of God and his kingdom, in other words, peoples all out there, Look at Israel. Look at God's word. Look how he has blessed us as a people who are a kingdom of priests that we can show you what life is supposed to be like. If that's the message of book two, and it ends on such a mountain peak of glory, book three is about Israel's devastation 
and the lessons that we learn about exile. Ending at the, the psalm, Psalter's nadir. Okay, so you have the apex and you have the nadir in Psalms 88 and 89. But thankfully, in book four, it raises us from the dust of death that we might gain a godly humility and a kingdom perspective regarding God's mysterious and sometimes painful ways of dealing with his people. That's my commercial for this text. I hope you're, you're excited where we're going. Where we're going in Psalm 72 is looking at this passage from three points of, of um, departure. A real historical kingdom, a model ideal kingdom, and a coming forever kingdom. So it's real and historical. It's a model and it's an ideal, but it's also coming and it's coming forever. Let's take a look first at the real historical kingdom. Boys and girls, when you open your, your children's Bible story book, children's Bible, or when you go to Sunday school and you see the, the Bible characters up on the felt board, it can kind of almost seem like it's a fairy tale, right? I mean, all these wonderful stories in the book, there's other books that we have at home, and we open them up and it talks about Tom Thumb, right? And um, other strange characters that we know are kind of like make-believe, once upon a time kind of stories. The Bible is different. We tend to forget that when we picture the images in those story Bibles and on those felt boards, that real people were born, grew up, married, labored, worshipped, and died in the kingdom of Israel. History records it. Archaeology confirms it. The Bible narrates it. For example, David really was a shepherd boy who slew a giant who soothed a troubled ruler, who slinked away to save his life, and succeeded Saul to become king. But we also know what David also did. He was a man after God's own heart, even though he committed adultery and murder. But then when he repented, God forgave him and blessed his son Solomon to rule over the most glorious kingdom the world has ever seen better than anything written in your fairy tale books. And we tend to forget that about Israel, that the kingdom of Solomon that was ruled as the, he ruled as the son of David was surpassing in its beauty, in its wealth, in its prosperity, in its righteousness, its wisdom, its holiness, its divine privilege, compared to all other nations, empires, and kingdoms in the world. In terms of its geopolitical boundaries, and now I'm talking to the adults, right? At its apex, Israel did indeed stretch from sea to sea, from the Mediterranean Sea all the way down to the northern tip of the Red Sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth, the river being a special word in the Hebrew that definitely refers to the Euphrates River that's at the top of the Fertile Crescent, all the way down to the, whip, uh, the, the, the southern tip of, of uh, the Horn of Africa, where, where God's people had an influence in their kingdom. For a good period of time, during Solomon's reign, no one would have faulted you for mistaking David's son Solomon as the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised son of David to come. It really did look like that. We spent last year looking through First and Second Kings, and um, we saw a lot of dysfunction and bad stories and sinners and terrible kings in those two books. But I want us to take a step back just very briefly to 1 Kings chapter 4, beginning at verse 21, so we can get a sense 
of what Solomon's wealth and his wisdom and the kingdom of Israel at its zenith really looked like. Solomon ruled over all the nations from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. That's farther than the nation of Israel stretched today or any other day in history. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. For he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates, from Tifshah to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates. And he had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety, from Dan even to Beersheba. That's like saying from Maine to Florida, from north to south. Every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand of the seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all the other men. And then it compares them, him to some, some of the most famous wise men of the time. Wiser than Ethan the Ezraite and He-Man, not the cartoon, okay, He-Man. Calcol and Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs. Now my kids know that I speak a few proverbs. Not 3,000. And his songs were 1,005. In other words, he got to 1,000, he said, I'm going to keep on writing. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. This was the first Renaissance man. Leonardo da Vinci had nothing on King Solomon. And it came by God's blessing. This real historical kingdom of Israel didn't just come about because Solomon was a hotshot. It was founded on God's covenant promises. In other words, God promised that it would be this way, and in the fullness of time, he brought it to pass. And everyone at the time recognized that Israel was the kingdom, not of Israel only, but the kingdom of God. Yes, that's what they called it. The Lord's glory inhabited his temple in Jerusalem, for example, fulfilling the promise that God would dwell in the midst of Israel, that Shekinah glory that filled the temple when Solomon finally dedicated it after the construction was done, and the priests had to, had to, had to hightail it out of the, the precincts because they couldn't see and they couldn't breathe and they were overwhelmed by the holiness of God. Did that ever happen to any other nation? This is God's kingdom. God promised to the patriarch Abraham that he would be blessed to be a blessing to the nations and that his descendants would be kings. That was coming true now, even before everyone's eyes who had eyes to see. It was obvious. The kings of the earth streamed to this relatively small kingdom of Israel because they saw that there was a crown jewel of all the world's kingdoms, and they had to see it for themselves. God's covenant with David and David's psalms of prayer that God would fulfill his promises, they're ended right here in Psalm 72. That's there on purpose, I think, to tell us that we have here the apex of God's glory in his earthly kingdom. They're ended in the reign of Solomon, whose name actually derives from Shalom. Did you ever catch that? I remember the first time I saw that, I was like, huh, 
I should have seen that before. Shalom being that, that concept of full-orbed peace in the Bible. Peace and prosperity and security and bounty and love and blessing and everything else that you can pack into that, that term. That's what shalom means. It's impossible to translate without getting out your amplified Bible where every time the word shalom appears, you have three sentences of all the adjectives that describe God's blessings for us in shalom. In a very earthly sense, God's covenant promises were indeed fulfilled. Now I want you to imagine for a moment that you're an ancient Israelite and you are attending the coronation of King Solomon. Okay? Now you know his father David was a great king. Not perfect. Not even really close to perfect when you consider his, his sins and his mistakes. Yes, he was a sinner. And his kingdom administration clearly declined after the Bathsheba and Uriah scandal. But still, David is the standard against all other kings that will be measured. We looked at that in 1st and 2nd Kings. Every single king, did he walk in the ways of his father David? Yes or no? And yet, while you're standing there, watching the son of David in all of his earthly splendor and his wisdom and the wealth and the power and the shalom that you could see around him, you know that a perfect king will someday arise from the house of David that will reign in unsurpassed glory, surpassing even his father David, even David. Now, pause for a moment. Let your mind wander. What would be your hopes on that day <clears throat> for that king and the kingdom that he would preside over. Uh, in terms of character, what do you think are the most important qualities in a leader? You'd probably be wondering if he would be like this or like that. This would describe him. He would be this kind of leader, this kind of ruler. In terms of his governing policy and his, his job performance, what would you think would be the most important priorities for a leader? Now, these questions are difficult to answer. They're moral as well as political. And profound wisdom is required to answer these. And the philosophers have debated them with each other for millennia. It's not easy at all to answer these kinds of questions because everyone will stress different qualities and priorities depending on their starting point, their vision of the ideal, right? So this leaves us in a conundrum that thankfully only God can solve. We desperately need God's word to cut through the confusion. Now what does Psalm 72 teach us about this model ideal kingdom? Here we learn two key aspects of God's kingdom, and here we're on the second point, God's model ideal kingdom. And these two key aspects are both gifts of God, not accomplishments that flow from human intelligence or human philosophy or human ideology, okay? The first aspect concerns righteousness and justice. And you, you could almost even put a hyphen between the two because they basically derive from same terms. They're, they're distinct in a sense without a difference in the Bible. Tzedek, that's the Hebrew root. Righteousness and justice are almost one and the same. They're very closely related. God's righteousness and justice, his righteousness justice, is a gift. Verse 1. And it is actually the only genuine form of justice in the world. Now, I just said something that might have been pretty controversial in your mind and your thinking. Okay? Do you actually believe that what I just said? Think carefully now. In verse 2, noses in the Bibles, okay? Bible study here. 
the same righteousness and justice with which the king judges the people, including the poor, is your justice, O God, and your righteousness in verse 1. Do you see that? The the justice that, that is prayed throughout Psalm 72 that this king would have is God's righteousness and justice. God is the source of the king's righteousness and justice. I want to hammer this home. And this means something. If it's true, then what does God's given righteousness and justice look like? Done by the king or by others who are uh, acting in his name, doing justice in his name? It defends the cause of the poor, for example. It delivers needy children and crushes their oppressors. This is verse 4. It causes the unruly and enemies to bow face down before the righteous and just king. That's verse 9. It delivers the needy, the poor, and the helpless when they cry out. Verse 12. It's not just harsh. It's not harsh at all. It has pity. It has tender mercies. It has love in its heart, empathy, and tender compassion on them by saving their lives. Verse 13. The one who rules in this God-given justice and righteousness treats the blood of these vulnerable people of his as precious in his sight, acting to redeem their lives from that oppression and that violence. That's verse 14. Now see, I want you to understand that this is the model, the ideal of God's righteous justice in his kingdom. God tells us what is his justice, which is the only real justice, and it tells us what it should look like and what we should aspire to in the real world kingdom. Now, if that's what God-given justice looks like in the real world, what kind of kingdom will it produce? That's the natural question that comes from this, right? You say, if this happens, then what will be the fruit of it? Psalm 72 gives us that other aspect, that other answer. Listen. Under God's blessing of his anointed king, as he reigns, we have a poetic glimpse of God-given prosperity. Again, God-given This is a prosperity that comes from the hand of God as he reaches into his purse of the world and dispenses blessings on one and all. And it is glorious. That's why you were charged when I read it. For the one who loves God and his kingdom, it's a dream come true. Like the strong cedars of Lebanon, Israel's crops burst forth in the hills, even up to the mountaintops, where fruit trees and amber waves of grain sway in the wind praising their creator, verses 3 and 16. Israel's anointed king will be a blessing to all people in every way. By his righteous judgments, he will be like refreshing showers on the land so that the freshly mown grass will glisten like diamonds. You know that look when right after it, it, it rains, or if the, the mist comes and you've just mowed the, the, the grass the night before and you see like little sparkles all over the yard and it just gives you a warm feeling in your heart? Verse six, that's verse 6. In his days that extend until moons wax and wane no more, peace will be everywhere, and the righteous, like green grass in the field, will flourish in the cities. Flourish. We get a picture of that in other parts of the scriptures. What does that look like? Cities bustling with business, with religious worship and festivals, where we're dancing and singing and playing and feasting together. Children laughing and singing and playing with their families, praising God. 
Because if they didn't, the stones would cry out if you didn't. So I love to hear every single one of you cry out and sing with your childlike voices because God loves it. Neighbors being good neighbors. Disputes being settled um, peaceably. Full plates from every garden. Wine from every home's vineyard. And God's smile upon it all. People of God, this is the vision of the good life right here. In some, God's justice produces shalom for all his people. All his people. They all rejoice. That's the model ideal kingdom. But the sad fact of the matter is that we don't yet live in the model ideal kingdom where God's anointed king rules on earth as he already does in heaven. No? You understand this, right? And so what do we do? We yearn for true justice and prosperity. Some of us yearn for it a lot. Some of us, at least in those rare moments where we stop and dream about what life really should be like, where we pick up our nose from the grindstone and we say, is this what it's all about, punching the clock and filling out TPS reports at work? No, it's more than that. <laughs> and we think about it, we see that Psalm 72 is giving us a glimpse of what life ought to be life, like living under heaven. However, as God's people, we don't always see righteousness and justice and shalom by God's wisdom. And this is where I'm going to, hopefully not, but probably will, step on everybody's toes in the whole room, okay? So if you get mad at me, just know that I'm trying to be a good pastor and trying to open up the word here so that we can all get along with each other and not bite and devour one another. Because what I'm going to talk about is the current social justice movement. Okay. This movement is gaining uh, rapid steam and sweeping into the church as it purports to advance the values of righteousness and justice in God's kingdom. The former things are being shaken, to say the least. And sometimes, shakeup is good, but in a sinful world, not always. A shakeup is not always good. We have to be able to evaluate it by the word of God. How can you evaluate whether the shakeup that social justice is bringing now into the church, whether it's good or bad? I could say just open your Bibles. That's easy, okay? But apparently we're all reading the same Bibles and we're coming to different conclusions, okay? So we need to have another word of instruction. We can't trust our feelings because feelings change. And many Christians feel very different about what we call social justice. Thankfully, God's word has a lot to say about this. So we can ask God if modern versions of social justice pass the biblical test. And I'm not going on a tangent here because I want us to see that a close reading of Psalm 72 provides a simple two-fold test to evaluate social justice in God's eyes. And now I need a drink, drink so excuse me. <clears throat> Let's look at the first test. Verses 1 and 2. Noses in the scriptures, okay? They indicate that God's justice is true justice. <clears throat> we already went over this. And it's a standard of justice that a non-biblical and an anti-biblical one shows that it is more or less a perversion of justice, okay? If, if true justice comes from God and there's only one kind of justice, then anything that, that is contrary, anti or, or non-biblical, by definition is not justice, which is Injustice. How can you tell the difference between God's true justice and a counterfeit? Well, first and foremost, by meditating on God's law, marinating 
your life in Jesus and the gospel and learning from others who are doing the same. Okay? So if social justice advocates you admire, for example, let's put it to the test, are not bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit, if they're wrongly dividing God's word so they're pitting one aspect of God's word against another, and they're handling Jesus like he's their sponsor rather than their Lord, then you're most likely dealing with a counterfeit version of justice that is the opposite of righteousness, the opposite of justice, which means that it's actually wicked and evil. And because it's a counterfeit, who's the father of all counterfeits? Satan, the father of lies. The verses in Psalm 72 that paint this idealized model picture of shalom, the prosperity, the peace, the flourishing, the blessing, etc., they indicate, I want you to see, that true justice produces harmony and bounty and reconciliation in such a way that all those who love God and his ways benefit and rejoice. That's the picture that Psalm 72 is giving us. It doesn't say, this is what God's justice does when you have half the church divided against the other and bickering and devouring one another. That's not the fruit of true justice, of God's justice. We have a picture where everyone is experiencing God's shalom. So the test, let's apply it. If a social justice leader, a movement, an organization, or an ideology fosters division, or strife, or distrust, or hatred, or factions in the church, then most likely it's not God's justice. If it demonizes and scapegoats certain people as members of a group, and then turns around and justifies and lionizes and excuses certain people because they're members of a certain group, then it's not God's justice because the Bible says that justice is impartial by treating everyone as equals under his holy law. Yes, we read in Psalm 72 that the righteous and just king delivers those who are being oppressed, the needy, the ones who have no help. But scripture also says that when it comes to a trial, you should not give favor to the rich or to the poor. You shall weigh the bit scales of justice, in a sense, with your eyes blindfolded. That's God's true justice. There are other biblical tests that we could apply, but the two tests of justice that Psalm 72 gives us are these. Does it flow directly or by good and necessary consequence from what the Bible says about God's law and God's gospel? And secondly, does it produce the kind of shalom that only God can give? If what claims to be social justice fails in either of these tests, then brothers and sisters, it ain't justice. It's simply not. And to support a counterfeit justice in any way, even from a motive that seems to be pure, that you, you think you're serving Christ, is to be an agent actually of injustice in a blind sort of way. And listen carefully. And then, according to Psalm 72, to become the object of God's wrath and his judgment against oppressors. So on the one hand, we must do justice. We absolutely must. But on the other hand, we best be very careful how we do it. How do we do it? We look to Jesus. We look to the Bible. And they show us the way. So let me offer a suggestion um, based on where you might be on your view and the spectrum of the various uh, social justices that are, um, that are offered to the Christian. On the one hand, Maybe you're the kind of Christian who's excited about the social justice movement in the church. Maybe you've read Tim Keller's Generous Justice, a book that has awakened many 
uh, to the Bible's command to do justice and you're all in. You're like, you gotta read this book. And it's a very good book. If that's you, however, I want you to see that maybe, just maybe, you might be a social justice warrior. Why do I say that? Because you might at least be ripe to become one. Keller's excellent book, which I'll talk about more in just a moment, has been taken up by so many of his eager followers who are young and new to the idea of social justice, and then they've unconsciously steered in terrible, unjust directions. In only 10 years. Actually, in chapter 6 of his book, and here it is, How Shall We Do Justice? How Should We Do Justice? It relies extensively on the writings and the living example of a man called, named John Perkins. Some of you may have uh, heard who he was. He's a Christian leader who's been at this justice thing a long time, for decades and decades, longer than many uh, social justice proponents nowadays have been alive. And he sees how biblical justice has been co-opted and corrupted into the righteous-looking counterfeit so that many well-intentioned, justice-minded Christians actually end up being complicit in wicked injustice. These are not my words. These are John Perkins, who knows what he's talking about. So if you're a fan of this book right here, Tim Keller's Generous Justice, and what both of them stand for, Tim Keller as well, then here's my assignment for you, okay? You also need to read a book called Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth. Okay? John Perkins, who I just spoke of from Generous Justice, he wrote the foreword to this book, hoping to pull you out of the trap of counterfeit justice and back to God's one and only true justice. Now, you might be thinking, are you serious? I mean, why, why can't I just read the Bible? You're recommending stuff that's extra biblical. Okay, that's true if it's not a cop-out, okay? You've got to remember that we are reading as Christians, even in this congregation, the same Bible, and some of us coming to very different conclusions, such different that we're tearing each other apart privately and sometimes publicly. God's people, this ought not to be so. And so if you chafe at saying, I'm not going to read your books, then maybe it's a cop-out. This is a really important thing that we need to talk about and to discuss and to come to a meeting of the minds as God's people in this, con- in this congregation, in the evangelical and reformed church, and the church worldwide. Because if we don't, if we think that our reading is correct and, and everybody else who just doesn't see it our way is wrong, then we'll tear each other apart. We won't experience shalom and we'll end up thinking, some of us, that we stand for righteousness and justice when we're actually unwittingly being unjust. Now, I've stepped on a few people's toes. Allow me to suggest a different kind of Christian. Maybe you're the kind of Christian, the kind of person who's eager to just say, I am just angry, angry, angry at all the talk of justice, justice, justice. And you want so badly for it just to go away so we can all get back to our peace and quiet, chasing the American dream, the life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. You've seen relationships broken over the, the topic of justice when it comes up with your family and friends. And you can't think of anything good, sincerely, when you think about it. That's come from justice, justice, justice. And you just want to be left alone to make a joke out of it. If that's you, then may I humbly suggest that you really need to repent of not knowing the God of the Bible very well at all. And you need to take up 
that second book that I showed you. I'm sorry. You need to take up generous justice. And you need to read it with an open Bible in hand. All right? See whether it's true that God wants so badly for his God-given righteousness and justice to characterize his people, that is us, that he commands you to be involved in pursuing it. It's not optional. It's a command. We see from Psalm 72 that if this is the good life, then our king and us as God's followers, the king's followers, the king's people, need to be about God's righteousness and justice. God's model ideal kingdom is a kingdom of justice that compels us to love from our hearts the poor, the orphan, the widow, the foreigner, the sick, the marginalized, the vulnerable, the lost, and yes, even our enemies. I want you to catch the vision of God's kingdom established. And it'll make you more like Jesus. It really will. Because God's justice makes everything beautiful and sweet. The way that Jesus lived his life, the words that he spoke, the way he treated even those who despised him and secretly plotted against him and eventually betrayed him and murdered him. Try doing that against your enemies. Even your foes in the church. I've tried. It's almost impossible. You have to go to the cross. You have to worship. And you have to say, God, please make me more like Jesus. That's the answer for us to experience the shalom that Psalm 72 is showing us. It's a healing and hopeful love. It's a justice fueled by love and forgiveness, repentance and reconciliation, joy and peace. Rather, God's justice bows to to mercy and grace. It does not demand. It's not easily angered. It's not rude. It's not hateful of people. It believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And at the cross, where cosmic justice, for love's sake, was poured out on God's Son in the place of us, in the place of sinners, And also where Jesus was at the same place and the same time crowned the king of kings. This is Jesus, king of the Jews. Three different languages written above his cross. Mercy there triumphed over judgment. The righteousness, justice that we spoke of, and peace, at that point they kissed each other. They're compatible. Not only are they compatible, they're put together and they're married together by God. In God's kingdom, the prayer of Amos, the prophet, that justice would roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, finally came true in Jesus Christ, who embodies love and justice, God's love and justice. Those two, love and justice, the two ideals of the gospel of the kingdom, they only fit together in him, my friends, only in the cross. This is the third point now, the coming forever king. Because when we look at this and we say, yes, yes, I'm excited. I see what you're saying. Yes, you stepped on my toes, but pastor, I I will look into those books because I realize that I need to stop hating my brothers. But when's it going to come to pass? Because we look at Psalm 72 and we say, a real historical kingdom, did did it pass us by? Here's the amazing thing about God's establishing his kingdom in Old Testament Israel. Because did Solomon and his kingdom, in all of its God-given glory that everybody in the world recognized, all of its splendor, all of its righteousness, all of its justice, all of its shalom, did all of them see a vision of heaven on earth? No. For a little bit, anyway. 
maybe for a couple of years, but no, they didn't. It all fell apart. We looked at that last year, First and Second Kings. Yes, the kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament, though, pointed in the direction of heaven. And I hope you got a glimpse of that. As much as her glory glistened, that's all Israel and her kings could do because they were a fading shadow, a type, an imperfect model of the reality of God's heavenly kingdom that would someday come in the reign of a king in which all the ideals and the hyperboles that we saw in Psalm 72 would stretch to fit. When we as God's people, <clears throat> living in God's place, under God's rule, pray these prayers in Psalm 72. May they fear you while the sun endures, <clears throat> and as long as the moon throughout all generations, that's verse 5, we see that no other king but King Jesus is feared as long as the sun rises and sets. No other one. When we pray, may all the kings, all of them, fall down before him. All nations serve him. That was verse 11, you remember, we read. We see that no other king but King Jesus receives this kind of homage from all nations. This morning, he's worshipped in every nation on earth. Yeah, every single one. Who else can say that? When we pray, may gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. That's verse 15. No one but Jesus, the reigning and ruling son of David, receives more precious gifts, is prayed to and for continuously, and is the name through which so many are blessed. Do you recognize him? It's him. And when the Christian prays, long may he live. <laughs> it's just another way of saying long live the king. Verse 15, only in Jesus are those prayers answered in a king who lives forever in resurrection glory. For only Jesus has risen from the grave, has ascended to the heavenly throne of God, and sits right now at the right hand of God the Father in heaven until he comes again on earth to bring in its fullness the kingdom of God. In his first public sermon in church, he announced the arrival of God's kingdom. I'm going to turn quickly to this. This is Luke chapter 4. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And this is what he read. The Spirit of God is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, like they're fixed on me right now. This is the way they did it in the synagogue. You would rise to read the scriptures, then you'd sit down when you were signaling that you were about to teach. And what did he say? Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. May God strike me down if I ever say anything <laughs> like that about myself. Jesus was proclaiming that the kingdom had come and was embodied in him and as he expounded the scriptures. And then later, those who didn't believe him, even his cousin, John the Baptist, sent and said, are you really the one? 
Are you really the one? Because all of our expectations of Psalm 72 don't seem like they're coming to pass. I mean, I'm in jail. Jesus, what's going on? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. This is Luke chapter 7. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In so many words he's saying, can't you see? Can't you see that I'm the king of Psalm 72? Can't you see that the kingdom not yet is complete in its fullness, but it's already been established? And here's the proof. Heaven is breaking through and is coming to earth. And all the things that we, we long for in the perfect life, the good life, the heavenly life, they're already dawning in this age. That's what Jesus is saying. The kingdom of righteousness and justice and shalom have come in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so therefore, people of God, what is the only righteous response to the arrival of Jesus and his establishing God's kingdom? Well, the Old Testament saints, they knew it even though they only saw it from afar. They did. Look at the end of the psalm. Bless the Lord God of Israel. Bless his glorious name forever. And pray with all your might that the whole earth would be filled with his glory. And then he ends, amen and amen. Okay, come on. This is Psalm 72. This is God's kingdom established. This is what it means for God's kingdom to be established and brought into, in, into history, to break through the darkness and to shine its light like the dawn of the sun rising at the beginning of the day. In Old Testament shadowy form, we recognize that Israel is a true but incomplete manifestation of God's kingdom. God's people living in God's place under God's rule, all to the glory of God throughout the whole earth. But now that King Jesus has come, God's kingdom is no longer a shadow because in Christ the fullness of God has been revealed. Not the shadow, the reality. It's here. Already in essence, but not yet in its fullness. And there's genius there on God's part in the way that he's working out his plans throughout history. In God's wise plan for the ages, we are currently living in a kingdom advancement stage. Okay? Not a kingdom of fullness stage, not a kingdom in its infancy, but a kingdom advancement. Okay? Do you understand why this is so wonderful? Our experience of God's established kingdom today has enough similarities to what Solomon and his Old Testament Israelites during his reign would have experienced thousands of years ago so that the psalms of the kingdom are still relevant today. They still resonate. They still teach and feed and lead us in greater spiritual maturity. And that's my prayer for this sermon series, that our eyes will be opened. Some of you, for the first time, as I study these passages carefully and bring his word to you, that, that my heart will be opened in new ways for the first time to what God's kingdom is actually about. That's not about eating and drinking. It's not about bickering and fighting and getting our way. But it's about what? Righteousness, justice, and peace in the Holy Spirit. And as much as God's heavenly glory keeps on advancing through the whole earth before he returns, oh, what a day that will be when righteousness and justice will reign because all peoples will serve King Jesus. On that day, 
heaven will come down and fill the whole wide world with his glory. But not yet. Remember, we live in a day when Christ's kingdom is truly established, but Jesus has not yet installed his righteousness, his justice, and his shalom in every home, in every heart, and in every square inch of the whole world. But that day is coming, and it's marked on God's calendar. It's fixed there. You can be certain. But until then, your calling, my calling, our calling together as Christians, as the church, is to spread the good news of the kingdom, to strive for God-given righteousness and justice, to enjoy the blessings of God-given shalom in your work and rest. In other words, it's not all dour, it's not all work, there's play, there's rest, there's joy, there's feasting too. And live and worship as if heaven is a real place. Because it is in Christ. That is how we see the kingdom established. God's people in Christ living in God's place in Christ, under God's rule in Christ. So let us pray along with the early church who longed for the anointed king, the one who they knew face to face, many of them, and longed for his return. What did they pray? Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. God, we pray that you would instruct us by your word and you would transform us to be like Jesus. That is our greatest prayer. That is our hope. That is our dream come true. And yet, Lord, we know that you establish it in our hearts in ways of sorrow and of suffering and of loss and affliction that you might bring us to persevere to be more like Christ. But help us to see, Lord, that only this is the path to shalom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.